Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In this episode, I talk with Professor Jennifer Gossetti Ferenczi about her new book, On Being and Becoming, An Existentialist Approach to Life. While existentialism has long been associated with Parisian left-bank philosophers sipping cocktails in smoke-filled cafes, or with a brooding, angst-filled outlook on life, Gossetti Ferenczi shows how vital and heterogeneous the movement really was. In this concise, accessible book, Gossetti Ferenczi offers a new vision of existentialism. As she lucidly demonstrates, existentialism is a rich and diverse philosophy that encourages meaningful engagement with the world around us, offering a host of fascinating concepts that pertain to life as we experience it. The movement was as heterogeneous as it is now misunderstood. Influenced by jazz music, involving diverse thinkers from around the world, challenging received ideas about the meaning of human existence. Part of the difficulty in defining existentialism is that it was never a unified philosophy, but came to identify a set of shared concerns about the meaning and possibility of human freedom, as it may be expressed in authentic choices, actions, and projects. Existentialists all explored how, in the absence of traditional reassurances about the meaning of life, we may transcend our present circumstances and give our situation new meaning. With existentialism, concrete, lived experience of the single individual emerged from the shadow of abstract systems and long-defended traditions and became subject matter in its own right for philosophical inquiry. Far from solicipsic, Gossetti Ferenczi shows that existentialist attention to the human self can be intertwined with ways of conceiving the world, our being with others, the earth, and the encompassing concept of being. Fully appreciating what existentialism has to offer requires recognizing the rich diversity of its prospects, which involve not only anxiety, absurdity, awareness of death, and the loss of religious meaning, but also hope, the striving for happiness, and a sense of the transcendent. On Being and Becoming unpacks this philosophical movement's insights and reveals how its core ideas promote creative responses to the question of life's meaning. Jennifer Gossetti Ferenczi is professor and Karel Mayer chair in German and professor in philosophy at Johns Hopkins University. She is the author of four books, including On Being and Becoming, An Existentialist Approach to Life, as well as a book of poems, After the Palace Burns, which won the Paris Review Prize. Hello, everyone. I am Elizabeth Cronin. 
a host of the New Books Network, and today I am talking with Professor Jennifer Gossetti Ferenczi about her new book on being and becoming an existentialist approach to life. I'm so happy to have you here today, Professor Gossetti Ferenczi, to talk about your book. And I'm wondering if you might start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this field and in this topic. Well, thanks very much, Elizabeth. Um, thank you, of course, for having me. And um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk about the book. I'm, I've been interested in this subject, existentialism and existentialist philosophy for a very long time. I have to say, um, although I say in the book that existentialism isn't only for young people because it really is for everyone, I did find existentialism when I was young. And of course it was my uh, sort of introduction to philosophy in a way. The first philosophical texts I read were some of the existentialist writers. And I was probably first drawn to them if I can remember correctly through their literary writings. So I had always loved literature and I loved modern literature in particular. And one of the kind of amazing things about uh, philosophy in an existentialist style is it lends itself very beautifully to being expressed in a literary form. So I had come across um, some literary works um, by the major um, existentialist thinkers. And then I was drawn to their philosophy because of course um, the novels and stories are packed with ideas or they're provocative of ideas that make you want to read further. So I developed um, an interest in philosophy and I sort of went away from existentialism for a while. I wrote a lot about phenomenology, which is, as you'll find in the book, somewhat related to existentialism. I wrote a lot about um, the philosophy of literature, the philosophy of art or aesthetics, um, and some um, works on history of philosophy. But in my teaching over the many years that I've been teaching philosophy and then um, literature, I came back to existentialism again and again. I found that um, whatever I was teaching about, these writers and thinkers just kept coming back to my repertoire and students found them extremely appealing. So I finally, after many years of this, decided to write this book because it really was in a way a return home to my roots in the first kind of astonished awakening, uh, discovering philosophy um, through a literary lens. And it was um, a way to be able to write for really um, everyone who might be interested in these topics in the way that I was, um, to give them an insight into how rich and diverse this kind of philosophical thinking can be. I will say that you write this book uh, in a way that's very accessible so that you, you can read it without having an academic background you know, on the subject. And I think that's, that's really helpful. What do you think is the draw for you? you? You mentioned you keep kind of coming back to existentialism. And even as you teach it as a professor, what do you think is the appeal to the students? Well, you know, the first thing you said about it being accessible is really important to me because I have written a number of books before and they have been very scholarly works with hundreds of footnotes and um, meant for sometimes an interdisciplinary audience, but often a very academic one. And I really did want to write for a broader audience this time. And this subject really lends itself because I believe that existentialism is 
really motivated by its interest in individuality, its interest in concrete life. That might not seem so obvious when you pick up some of the great heavy um, books that the existentialists have written, like Being in Nothingness or Being in Time or some of Nietzsche's works. They seem very abstract if you are uninitiated into their vocabulary and their way of thinking, but actually they're all turning to the individual human life as the subject matter of philosophy. And that really is something uh, unique and novel because much of the history of philosophy is devoted to discovering truths that are universal, um, maybe even essences that seem to transcend the world that we can really experience palpably. And existentialism wanted to take the resources of philosophical thinking and turn them toward life as the individual person actually lives it. What are the concerns of our existence? What does it matter? What does it mean and matter to be an individual human being that is unlike any other human being and yet is just as human as everyone else? Those are the kind of questions that are constantly being addressed in existentialism. And I think that's why students are continually interested in them. A lot of the knowledge that they are studying in other subjects is extremely important for understanding how the world works, whether the social world or the physical world, but very little of it is really devoted to the question of um, what it means to be a human person, what it means to be you, the individual as a human person, and what uh, kind of meaning might your life have. So existentialism really appeals to people who are just thinking about their own experience in the world and about what it means to be here. And so when, when I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me was the idea that existentialism also, well, just the connection of existentialism to one of the core ideas being freedom and the idea that, because I, I think of it as being like the search for truths and you know, the, the meaning of life and all that kind of thing. But what can, comes out in the book that I found interesting is that it also opens up the opportunity for an individual to reflect upon their unique circumstances and to break free from the constraints of expectations given their circumstances. So you, you could even think of how like, it just opens up an opportunity for people to not be limited by yeah. the circumstances they're born into. So you've asked about freedom as one of the core principles of existentialism, as well as the kind of search for meaning and the way in which we are not, according to existentialists, merely stuck in our circumstances. So let me try to put those things together a little bit. When you think about um, human beings from a number of different perspectives, you might come up with lots of different ways of explaining human life. You can look at us from an evolutionary perspective, a biological perspective. You could look at um, society from a wide um, perspective and find how it impacts the individual. You could look at the human being and human life from a religious perspective. Many different ways of looking at the human being could give explanations or accounts of the fact that we're here and how we are. But none of that 
um, really asks the question of what we want to be and what we might make of ourselves. One of the things that's really important to existentialists is that the circumstances that we find ourselves in are also interpretable by us. We aren't just uh, arriving in a world that is already determined in all of its meanings and we just have to fit into it like cogs into a wheel. Rather, it recognizes that we are free to reflect on our lives and to think about it in multiple possible ways. Yes, and so I think something that you had said um, in one of the chapters you talk about Socrates and how he points out that sometimes we mistake mere opinion for knowledge. And when you say that we actually have that capacity to in, in, you know, incorporate information into our choices, um, that seems like an interesting kind of, I don't know if that's a nuance of existentialism, but this idea that we can actually try to check for when we are, when our perception is accurate or skewed in some way. That makes sense? Yes, it does. I think it's really important that um, existentialism is philosophical. And of course, on the one hand, the history of philosophy, and I'm speaking primarily about Western philosophy for the moment. On the one hand, Western philosophy is um, concerned with universal truths and often not very interested very much in the individual experience. But starting with Socrates, and then in lots of different moments throughout the Western tradition, you do have a concern for and an interest in how um, we might think about ourselves and we might think about our lives and what we do. And of course, um, the fact that we have the capacity for reflection and understanding ought to be able to inform how we think about ourselves as well. So I think one of the things that existentialist philosophies in, in lots of different ways, because we'll probably get onto this, but there isn't just one existentialist philosophy, but many different existentialist approaches, but they all seem to want us to um, liberate ourselves from any predetermined or prepackaged or pre-given meaning or under self-understanding and to think about ourselves in different possible ways and to recognize what freedom we may have for determining ourselves otherwise or to thinking about our lives and our interactions with the world in new ways. Right. So that ties back to like, that sounds very liberating that the idea that even if you had some, if, if you are born into a situation where it's sort of prescribed that you're supposed to go in this direction or into this profession, that you could, you could exercise the ability to break away and come up with another path. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, now, it is a difficult thesis to hold that we are free. Um, and increasingly, seem to be aware of how freedom isn't simply um, a kind of faculty of ours that can be exercised in any way we wish, but rather it's always embedded in our circumstances. So this is one of the things that existentialists in different ways had to cope with. If we're free, to what extent we're free? Are we free? And in what ways can that freedom engage our circumstances? And in what ways do our circumstances impinge upon our freedom? So um, it's really important to recognize on the one hand, the universal sort of principle that human beings have the capacity to um, elect to some extent their actions and uh, who they want to be. 
On the other hand, it's really important to recognize that they all, as existentialists put it, are thrown into a world that they didn't devise. They already show up in a world that's full of meanings and that's full of social structures and political structures and economic structures and so on that profoundly determine the circumstances in which they have to exercise their freedom, with which they have to interact. So sometimes um, existentialism can be um, described as a philosophy that overemphasizes individual freedom, particularly Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy, for example. He, he's very famous for saying things that like we're absolutely free under any conditions, that we're condemned to be free and so on. Um, and he put a huge premium on the, the problem of human freedom and his insistence that that's the starting point. Our freedom is the starting point. But even Sartre, who was perhaps the most vigorous advocate of individual freedom, even he had to cope with and contend with the understanding that every time we act and react within the world, we are doing so within a set of circumstances that we didn't devise. And he called that facticity. And he borrowed, um, even he borrowed that term from Heidegger's philosophy. So the whole problem of freedom is how is it that our free um, exercise of desire, will, action, decision, and so on takes place within complex circumstances? And how can we interact with those circumstances in a way that um, we put our own mark on them, we help to shape them, rather than accepting simply that they shape us? So as I'm listening to you um, now, I'm thinking of, I just associated to Viktor Frankl and his, his book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, and of course, meaning making as a part of existentialism, and thinking like there, you're acknowledging in a way that there is oppression, that there are societal structures that, that keep people, hold people back, that power isn't shared equally and, and, and things like that. So I think that's an important part that takes it from a philosophy or theory to like that acknowledges, you know, the, like you said, I think you call them circumstances you're thrust into. Um, and so that's where I think it gets really tricky because so Viktor Frankl would say that even in a, amongst an oppressed situation, there's still the freedom of how you're going to respond, I guess, to yourself and to the people that you're, you know, um, that are also there with you. And so I don't know if you have some thoughts on, on that. Um, well, I would like to think that it's so, that um, he would be one who, who, who very well understands the impact of incredibly oppressive circumstances. And the testament, even within such circumstances to human freedom, is really quite inspiring. On the other hand, I think that it's possible that we might have to be a little careful in understanding what it takes to be a free self. And whether or not there are ways in which we can be so impacted by circumstances that our self is compromised or that our freedom might be compromised. Now, one of the reasons why existentialists do vigorously defend that sort of core of human freedom is because that's also the justification for an ethical standpoint. Why must we respect other people as individuals? Why must we respect their freedoms? Because that's what it means to be a human subject or self. And to deny them freedom is to deny their, their individuality and indeed their humanity. So it is with good sort of ethical 
purpose that existentialists want to defend uh, the core of the human self as a free self. At the same time, many existentialists, including Sartre and Beauvoir and Camus, were very interested in the fight against oppression. I haven't yet mentioned um, some of the post-colonial thinkers like Franz Fanon and the African-American thinkers like W.E.B. Du Bois and some of the writers like Richard Wright. I mention all of these in the book. And of course, they were very interested in the fact that even though they all believed that there was a sort of core human dignity, they were very well aware of the ways in which other people can oppress the self or can deny or attempt to deny the humanity of the self. And so uh, many existentialist thinkers were vigorously devoted to the problem of being with others, as they called it, um, not just being a self, but being with others and among others. And they gave great thought to the ways in which the interaction of self and others can be affirming or indeed sometimes denying of the human dignity. So um, Camus and de Beauvoir and Sartre and all of those other thinkers that I mentioned um, all spent a great deal of effort to try to figure out the, the kind of mechanics of freedom. That is, in what way is there a pushback from the world when I'm trying to assert myself? And in what way can a self among others um, be both affirmed in freedom, but also subject to, subjected to the oppression of others? That's interesting. I wonder if, like, I'm just thinking of the United States of America and the, the Constitution and the founding fathers. And I'm just wondering if there may have been any existentialism influencing their thinking? In well, in a way, yeah, in a way, I think so. Because the historical roots of existentialism are quite wide and deep. So even though I point out that existentialism is a kind of a um, constellation of philosophical positions that arise in the 19th and 20th century. In fact, they draw all of the thinkers and writers that we associate from, with existentialism draw from the whole long tradition, beginning with Socrates as a kind of model of a philosopher who was very invested in um, the individual soul and in concrete living, making philosophy into concrete life and affirming um, the virtue of the individual soul. And there were other moments in the history of this thinking that um, supported a kind of turn inward and a, um, a self-reflection and a consideration of oneself in the world. So I mentioned a lot of those moments throughout um, the, the historical tradition, including the Enlightenment, which of course was directly influential for the development of modern democracies. And existentialism really wouldn't exist without those longer and deeper roots. The idea of freedom of the individual was an enlightenment principle. And that is something that existentialists took um, and considered in a variety of ways. Of course, um, they were interested in the way in which freedom wasn't only for them a rational principle, that is a kind of principle of being able to decide um, moral right and wrong or um, political self-determination, but also the freedom to be able to shape oneself. Right. And so how does existentialism, when you get into like, you know, moral decision-making and things like that, how, how does it relate to some of the world religions? Well, that's a good question. Um, actually, there are a number of 
approaches in existentialism, some of which are very um, resonant with religion and others which are not. So um, Gabrielle Marcel, for example, made the distinction between religious existentialists, which he included himself, and he mentioned uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and one could um, mention Martin Buber and a number of, number of other thinkers who thought of existentialism in terms that were quite compatible with a belief in a God. Um, whereas there were other existentialists who were quite atheistic in their perspective, that would be Sartre and Beauvoir and Camus, for example. And still other existentialists made the idea of religion quite um, an issue worthy of critical scrutiny. And I'm thinking about Nietzsche insofar as we consider him an existentialist, um, but he cer certainly shares a great deal of themes in common with the existentialists. And Nietzsche, of course, is famous for declaring that, quote unquote, God is dead. Um, but what he really meant by that, he had a religious background himself, incidentally. What he really meant by that phrase is that he recognized living at the end of the 19th century and uh, in a culture which was increasingly secularist and in a culture in which the understanding of human life and of how reality works was no longer dependent on a religious explanation. And yet he thought we still lived in the shadow of traditional uh, ideas about morality, which in the 19th century could be quite what we would consider now repressive. So um, there are a number of different ways in which existentialism can relate to religious thinking. So Kierkegaard, for example, um, is a deeply Christian thinker, and yet he felt very much at odds with the, the practices and um, attitudes of much of the religious culture in which he lived, which he thought was a bit too comfortable. It reassured people that they knew what they were doing um, instead of directing them as Kierkegaard thought it should toward the idea that God is something infinite and vastly beyond us. And therefore we must take a kind of um, radical transformation in order to believe in something that defies logic in Kierkegaard's sensibility. Lots of Christian thinkers, of course, did think that belief in God was wholly compatible with logical and rational argument. And they made exquisite arguments about the existence of God using reason. But Kierkegaard thought faith was something different altogether. That actually it was paradoxical and it defied reason and rationality and it required something else of us. So, he would be an example of a, an, an existentialist who, despite being unconventional, is nevertheless very deeply religious. Other existentialists like Camus, for example, um, or Sartre and Beauvoir, reject the idea of God because they think that it's been a kind of explanation for the meaning of life that has supplanted our own need to um, understand a world in our own terms. And with some of the religions come the comes well, there's the doctrine too, the, you know, the rules for how you're to live your life and all of that, which, which again, can be oppressive and can, you know, compromise. But also, yeah, I would add, though, that there's also in, in many religions, um, something quite very positive for us in terms of spirituality and living our lives. Religion can be a way of reflecting on our lives and our purpose. Um, and it can give people um, means and of communicating a sense of transcendence or spirituality or hope for a world that is better than the world that they see. And all of those things I think are compatible with existential self-reflection. 
um, thinking about what we might be and what, what we might become ought to be compatible with a spiritual sense of the world, just as it's compatible with a sense that the world doesn't have any inherent meaning. So I'm thinking about the, uh, like having a level of anxiety related to uncertainty, to sort of really embracing uncertainty and, and how accepting that religion can also provide the comfort of the idea that, you know, we know things, you know, that we don't have to feel so unsure that there are things we can comfort ourselves with ideas. Yes. Um, One of the themes, of course, that comes up in many existentialist writings is the question of anxiety. Kierkegaard wrote an entire book called The Concept of Anxiety. Um, And in Heidegger's philosophy, anxiety plays a very big role, as does the idea of being towards death or being aware of our finitude. And Sartre talked about anxiety and the sense of forlornness and despair that we can feel. All the existentialists were were very interested in and um, reflective about the fact that uncertainty can create a sense of despair for the human being. So if we have a sense that the world is already figured out and that our place within it is fixed and we're content with that, we may not be provoked to feel despair. But actually there are a great number of provocations for anxiety in human life, whether we're existentialists or not. I mean, Schopenhauer, who's quite a pessimistic philosopher, wrote about the fact that even if life is very beautiful and wonderful, that very fact that we know that it's going to be taken from us with time, because of course, we're all mortal, that alone is a kind of reason to be despairing. But on the other hand, there's also something quite amazing about the fact that we're here for a brief time, and we have a certain freedom to be able to shape our interaction with the world that it's a world of possibility. And though it is finite, there is a value in that as well. And sometimes being aware of our Mm -hmm. finitude can not only provoke anxiety, but can be a reason to embrace and appreciate what's around us, what we have, what we might be, what we might do with our time, etc. So I suppose what I would say about existentialist interest in anxiety um, and uncertainty is that they dignify it in ways that other philosophical or theological approaches might not. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm just thinking about another core concept, and I'm not sure how it's related, but that how the whole idea of authenticity ties in then to that as well. Um, Like you said, if your circumstances are working for you and, and everything seems you know, fine, then there's, there isn't a level of angst or despair, whatever religious beliefs you have, or whatever your circumstances are, feel good. But what about if you find yourself in a good situation, and there's some conflict that just doesn't with like a feeling authentic? Well, I think that um, existentialist reflection, by which I don't mean you have to be reading the the philosophical books, but the fact that you're thinking about your existence can occur to us both in difficult times and in good times. So even when things are going well for us, I think it's very um, prevalent among us that even when we don't have concrete difficulties, we may be beset by 
wondering whether we're living the lives that we ought to live or wondering whether we are taking a direction that really um, fulfills our innermost possibilities. And that is related to the idea of authenticity. So I think that um, probably most people who have had good experiences or a stroke of good luck, even they will probably admit that they know that they're susceptible to a feeling of uncertainty. And that comes with the sheer awareness that whatever life you have, whether it's good, whether it's troubled, whether it's difficult, whether it's tumultuous, it's only one life. And whatever it is that you do with that life has a great deal to do with your choices, even if, as we've said, so much of what happens to us and the world we show up in isn't of our own devising. So authenticity, I think, is a, is a term that shows up in a lot of different existentialist texts, and it's sometimes meant different things are meant by it. But overall, I think the idea is reckoning with the sense of possibility that one's, whatever what life one has and whatever choices one is making, it's a choice among other possibilities and embracing that and accepting one's own freedom and contribution to that, I think is what that's all about. Is this something that you think is just natural to us as human beings? Does everybody reflect or is it something that people need to be thoughtful about and remember to engage in some time to reflect? Well, that's a wonderful question. I don't really know. Um, I would imagine that human beings are quite diverse and some people are going to be more, um, shall we say, prone to or susceptible to self-reflection than others. And I don't think it's a question of of value judgment, whether someone who is deeply self-reflective is necessarily uh, more authentic than someone who is not. Um, But I do think that life as human beings experience it shares some universal features among all of us. I've mentioned finitude, our mortality. None of us can live forever. And we are aware of that fact. So that's one thing. But then the other one might be that um, every time we make a choice, we have to forego other choices. And that pertains to everyone equally. And another might be that if we make a mistake or regret something, we cannot turn time around and go backwards and do people hate people don't like that one at all (laughs) we can't go back and fix things in the past that's right you can't redo it um you can reinterpret it though and you can take lessons that you learn from it and move forward in a new way so but those things the fact that we can't uh reverse time that we all are finite and mortal um, and that when we choose one thing, we have to give up other things. Those are all provocations to reflection, I believe. So I think that it's within pretty much every human situation or every human situation intact where the basic needs are met and one has a moment to reflect that one may be susceptible to reflection. But I believe that's also a very good thing. That's also what allows us to think about our lives um, as possibilities. Right. And I think, you know, at one point you were saying that for anybody who is kind of experiencing any kind of like a spiritual um, dilemma or um, struggling with something on a spiritual level, that existentialism can be helpful to them. 
Yeah, I believe so. I mean, one of the things that, as I mentioned earlier, that existentialism does is that it validates as a kind of worthy experience, our experience of uncertainty. And that means that even spiritual uncertainty is a valuable and important experience. That doesn't give you a solution or an answer, but it does say that the question that you're asking is one that arises from the very fundamental features of your being human. I have this had this reaction, like, I think my inclination is to be like, well, is this a useful way to spend my time? Or is this somehow self-indulgent or, you know, this idea and what, what you're saying is a very comforting message, which is if you're really struggling with something that feels worrisome and causing you a lot of angst that that in itself is worth acknowledging, like, okay. And it's making me think of like um, mindfulness meditation, that there's a way in which you start with like accepting that this is how I feel right now and giving it attention, even if it's, you prefer not to be feeling that way. Yes. Um, Gabrielle Marcel once said something quite lovely, which is that traditional philosophy before existentialism often took concrete human worries and concrete human anxieties and real suffering and exiled them to some kind of disreputable suburb of thought. That's how he put it. That we think that because it's emotional and because it's relates to our sense of uncertainty, that it can't be intelligent or intellectual or reflective. But actually existentialism undoes that prejudice, that actually uncertainty is part of the human condition. And when we accept that, then it may make us feel a little bit more courageous in embracing the fact that every possibility that we experience while you know, negating other possibilities that we can't experience, it's ours. And the very fact that we're experiencing it gives it some kind of value. So that I wonder about the Western culture and how receptive you think the culture is. As I said, I think there are shifts and people are more willing to um, be open to these kinds of ideas. However, we're still pretty much a black and white culture where people are you know, finding this is right, that's wrong, um, searching for where, where the problem lies, you know, and, and so this well, to- there, well, there's a place for that kind of thinking, too. And there are a lot of problems that we need clear headed, rational, empirical evidence and data for, you know, when we're talking about the climate, or we're talking about inequality, or we're talking about pollution, or any of the concrete problems that we face, sometimes we need clear headed thinking, rational approaches, and um, the kind of answers that scientists can help us uh, find and figure out. But I also think that Western culture is quite confused because um, we're very um, individualistic, we're very materialistic, um, we're very much um, tuned in to a kind of um, global conversation. Um, At the same time, um, there's a lot of, um, I think, need to reassess what is our real purpose for being here. There are a lot of directions in which we're going, for example, environmentally, where we're starting to recognize this isn't sustainable. And how might that have to do with my own choices in my own life, um, as well as with the larger social structures and so on in which we live. That's nicely said. I think to some extent, 
there's some value then in saying that we, if there's some benefit to slowing down or pausing instead of continue to just keep going full speed ahead. And, and so again, it goes back to like, even if it doesn't come easily to you, there's some probable, probable value in reflecting and assessing and, and come together to, to share ideas and to like, to, you know, get diverse opinions and together. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, sometimes life moves very fast. The demands uh, on individuals for living and sustaining the lives that they live can be very high and very heavy. Um, and making it through life is sometimes an encompassing endeavor, whether you have it um, um, relatively easy, but are still um, beset by worries or perhaps more materially difficult. I think that we are encouraged to participate in life in ways that aren't necessarily the, for the best for us or even for each other or for the world. Um, there's a kind of endless push toward materialism. There's a, um, a sense of um, anxiety surrounding competition. There's a sense of having to keep up with others. And because of social media, there's an increasing anonymization of our participation in the social world. And I think that it's good to pause and remember the concrete nature of our experience, the reality of what it means to be an individual really in the world among real other individuals whom we interact with and with whom we might have um, better communities. That sounds like something we need right now, <laughs> you know? Indeed, I think on a number of levels. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I want to thank you for giving us so much of your time today and just check in with you and see if there was anything else you wanted to um, address or if there's anything you're working on now that you want to share with us um, before oh, we let you go. You. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, I do have a number of projects. One, one that I would probably feel comfortable speaking about is um, my interest in literature and its relationship to ecological thinking. So I've been working on a project that concerns um, how literary experiences might foster different possible ways of conceiving our relationship to nature and the natural world. Um, there are There is a kind of burgeoning field of environmental humanities and environmental literary studies. And I hope to contribute to that, but I hope maybe in a way, a bit inspired by this book, um, in a way that reaches out to a broader audience than what might have been my usual um, scholarly and academic uh, audience alone. That sounds wonderful because my experience is that when I'm out in nature is when I often reflect the most or feel connected to some of those more universal experiences of life, the awe of the, of the universe and, you know, nature itself. And absolutely. One of the things I hope to have brought out in On Being and Becoming is that existentialism has never really been properly appreciated as a philosophy that stimulates environmental thinking. But I hope to have shown um, in a number of places that it really is not only compatible with environmental thinking, but it actually supports it in um, many, many ways. One of the beautiful things about thinking about our being here and our existing in this world is whether or not we want to take care of it and how we have to think about our interactions with it in order to be able to do it. I think um, a number of existential thinkers, including 
um, Camus and Nietzsche and, and others um, promote our sensibilities and support in philosophical terms, all those kinds of experiences of nature that you were describing. Right. And, and I think that's part of modern society is we're so disconnected and, 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 you know, you do a beautiful job in the book of talking about, you know, our relationship with our world and well with others, but our world. And, and, and I think it's um, yeah, it's really important. So this is exciting work that you're working on. People can find out about this. Can they visit your uh, website or what's yes, the best way? Yeah, absolutely. There's a description of um, all my books on, on the website as well. And there probably will be soon some more about um, the literature and ecology project as well. Great. And we'll make sure that that's in the blog too, so that people can look that up. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing so much with us today and, and giving us your time. And I wish you well in your future projects. It was absolutely my pleasure, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for talking to me.